What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Monday, February 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know that the State of the Union didn't mean anything when it was announced that Donald Trump will be talking about unity. There are two tells to that. One is that he was talking about unity, and the other was that Donald Trump was talking. But I do not believe that we have ever seen a weekend after the State of the Union when the speech went unmentioned, largely unmentioned on the Sunday shows. Meet the Press literally did not invoke the phrase State of the Union once. I bet that's never happened before. On Face the Nation, the only mention of the State of the Union was this by conservative panelist Jonah Goldberg. Democrats this last week walked into... Uh, Donald Trump's thing at the State of the Union about how we're never going to be a socialist country by... Yeah, that thing. Oh, but another thing, and I was really thinking about this way too much. There was this one rhetorical slash symbolic move that Trump made that I talked about, but I've still been trying to figure out exactly what he was saying, like really examining it. It's when he invited Joshua Trump, who was bullied as a 10-year-old. His last name's Trump. He was bullied because his last name is Trump. So it was Trump's point that bullying is bad. I mean, that is Melania's cause du jour. But is it that bullying is bad because a Trump was bullied? is really the best illustration of not bullying the fact that you get a kid named Trump. I mean, wasn't this really about Trump's victimization to have to point to Joshua Trump? I heard it put forth in conservative media. Well, what it is, and dumb conservative media, not good conservative media, that, oh, this shows that there's a parallel between kids named Trump being bullied, which I guess was was the only case we know about, and the phenomenon that's long been reported of kids of Latino descent being bullied with chants of build that wall. There are dozens, if not hundreds of examples of that. And so conservative media did a little good for the goose, good for the gander type logic. All right. So putting aside the foolish notion that uh, 10 year olds shouldn't drive the national agenda in the one instance, if we're talking about the parallelism, The bullying stems from little kids who agree with Trump or whose parents agree with Trump. And this agreement, this opinion has been passed down to them from the president that Latinos should be prevented from entering the country or purged from the country. It's an overzealous and cruel extension of a policy that Trump backs and says so at every instance. So in the other case, the boy named Trump who was bullied, he was bullied because his name was Trump. There's no Democrat saying our policy should be against the name Trump. I suppose Democrats are saying we should be against Trump, Donald Trump, and we are. But there is no logical connection between being against this Trump and being against that little 10-year-old Trump. But there is a logical connection. It is an unkind connection, but there is quite a logical connection between a president who backs an anti-Latino policy and little kids in a school exhibiting anti-Latino animus. Now, I suppose a lot of the uh, Hispanic kids who were bullied were here quite legally. So it's an example of they it's just little kids making the same mistake as if they bullied a guy named Joshua Trump. But when you think about it, a lot of those kids who were bullied with chance of build the wall, they, they probably aren't here entirely legally. And so I do think it's different when you bully someone by taking some negative connotation associated with the president and applying it to some other kid who you think has that connotation. There's a difference between that 
And when you bully someone by factually stating your time is coming if the president gets his way. Because the president says, your time is coming. I think that second case is a lot worse. And then the other thing is, how does this even work for Trump inviting Joshua Trump? Yes, I know we can always cite the tautology of appealing to the base. But why is it appealing even to the base to see a kid unrelated to Trump being bullied? I guess you could... In general, say Trump supporters are so aggrieved that when someone named Trump is attacked, it plays into their righteous defense mechanisms. I don't know. You know what? Maybe it doesn't even work. Maybe inviting Joshua Trump actually didn't work at all, even among his base. Maybe Trump just miscalculated. Maybe there's no one on staff who said, what are you really saying by little lad Trump's being invited? Or maybe Trump wanted the boy close to him so he could lean over and say, listen, listen, kid, the Trump brand's about strength and power. We can't allow this to happen. So either change your name or you buck up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a lot of attention. You could leverage it to get some sweet deals with mercenaries and security guards. That's exactly how it worked for Rudy. And then as if to answer all these questions that I was asking myself about this event that I know you forgot, but still stuck with me. Guess what the kid does? The kid falls asleep, immediately intuiting that lasting mark that the state of the union would have. On the show today, Another bit of bizarre presidential rhetoric. It came after Amy Klobuchar announced her run for office in the snow. Can she win if she lacks backing from progressives, money interests, male billionaires, and that all-important union of skittish Senate staffers? But first, Klobuchar's Democratic colleague, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, is here. We will be discussing the idea of a new AUMF authorization for the use of military force. Murphy has introduced a new version of the AUMF, updating the one passed right after 9-11 that will define the mission more clearly, that will limit the never-ending nature of the original AUMF, and most importantly, that just reasserts Congress has a role in all of this. Wait until the end of the interview to hear the senator give odds of his new AUMF passing. Hint, it is about the same odds that the Mets have of winning the World Series. I would rather have the Mets win perfectly, but The senator can't do anything about that. So, AUMF, U.S. policy to the Saudis and Venezuela, up next with Senator Chris Murphy. The authorization to use military force passed by Congress on September 14, 2001, authorizes the president to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th. A year later, an add-on AUMF, that's the authorization to use military force, gave the president authority to essentially go after Iraq. Now, think about this. It's 2019. We have kids who are fighting in these ongoing wars who are doing so under an authorization that was passed before they were born, passed when the leaders of those countries were the Taliban, Saddam Hussein, instead of allies, if not handpicked allies of the United States. And also somehow those authorizations are used to justify U.S. involvement in Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Kenya, Niger, Cameroon, Uganda, South Sudan, Congo, Central African Republic, Djibouti, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Gitmo, and Kosovo. 
Chris Murphy is a senator leading the fight to take back some semblance of control from the executive branch on this issue. It is not a partisan one. He sponsored legislation to do so when Barack Obama was president. Senator Murphy, thanks for coming on. Thank you for focusing on this. Yeah, um, I'm, I don't think I'm doing so because I'm some sort of uh, political science nerd or because I believe in, you know, just doing the right thing because of process. I strongly believe that there is a connection between citizens and the use of the military and these 19 or 18 year old doctrines are getting in the way of that very basic civic connection. It's not a question, but is that what motivates you? Yeah, listen, this is one of the most fundamentally important aspects of American democracy, the skepticism that our founding fathers had about vesting war-making authority in one individual, one individual who was, at the same time, the president of the United States and the commander-in-chief of our armed forces. They made a very clear decision that when it came to putting uh, American men at the time and now men and women in harm's way, they wanted the whole country to participate in that decision. Discussion. So Congress was given the ability and the responsibility to declare war. Now, that used to be a little bit easier because prior to the advent of these shadowy, diffuse terrorist organizations that we are presently fighting, it used to be that armies marched against each other across open fields of battle. And when the fighting was done, there was a peace treaty. And so you knew when war started, you knew who you were fighting, and you knew when wars ended. That's not how warfare works any longer. And so since it has gotten so darn confusing as to when wars begin and and who you fight, Congress has decided that they don't want to be in that business any longer Mm -hmm. because it's hard to create those definitions. And so it's better off just outsourcing the decision about how to make war to the president. So I want to ask you about the motivations of your fellow legislators. When it comes to some authority, like as appropriators, they zealously protect that authority, but not in this area. Not everyone, you, Bob Corker, when he was in the Senate, Mike Lee, uh, to name a couple of Republicans. But it's not like there's some groundswell to get something done and to take back the power for your branch. And I wonder why. Do they think it's a losing issue? Do they worry that they might take a political hit if they authorize a war that goes bad or don't authorize a war that the country comes to regret and they'll look weak? What's the motivation? Well, I think the, the the motivation is is one, one that I can understand, which is folks don't want to make a mistake. And the worry is that if you start naming in statute the terrorist organizations that we're fighting, then it just allows those groups to change their name or to adapt into something else. And then all of a sudden, America can't fight that terrorist group. Uh, second, though, these calls aren't as easy as they used to be. Take Libya. Um, there was a lot of consternation in Congress as to whether or not we should go in and take out uh, Gaddafi as he was marching his armies on his own people. And so instead of having that really messy debate about whether we should give the president the authorization to do it and what we should give him the authorization to do and for how long we should give him the authorization, Congress just said nothing. And President Obama took that as a sort of silent sign of endorsement and sent the U.S. forces into Libya for a period of time. It turned out to go horribly wrong. Um, but it, 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 the fact that it went wrong is indicative of why 
Congress didn't want to get involved in the first place because they just weren't sure whether to say yes or no. And so they said nothing. Right. So that's an example where they could say, well, I guess that's on him. But I have another theory. And I think that many legislators feel that the president and the U.S. military are essentially doing what needs to be done, but they worry that the public won't see it that way. Or maybe the public will be easily misled or demagogued. It might hurt them in re-elections. And so, therefore, by abdicating their responsibility, their hands are clean and it never really will come back to haunt them. So I think that's true. I've had only a couple moments in my political career that I call supermarket moments where people are so upset about something happening in Washington that they literally yell across the grocery store to me, um, uh-huh. not waiting to you know get in front of me for a private conversation. And one of those moments was the weekend in 2013 when Congress was debating going into Syria, the one time that Congress got serious for a short period of time about debating a war authorization because President Obama said, I'm not dropping bombs in Syria unless Congress gives me the responsibility. It was pandemonium back home. People didn't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, people had seen the mistakes we made in Iraq and didn't want to make another set of them. And so Congress was not going to give the president that authorization, despite, as you mentioned, a lot of members of Congress quietly thinking that they should. And so I think that was an episode that chilled Congress's enthusiasm to ever take that debate up again, because they thought exactly as you said, they might not ever get permission from the people to enter into war against uh, somebody like Bashar al-Assad, I would argue that if you don't get permission, you shouldn't do it, that you, that the people are smarter than you give them credit for when it comes to learning from the mistakes of the past. Yeah. And it also argues that if Amazon replaces all retail, then citizens will not have an opportunity to yell at their elected officials. <laughs> <laughs> so They will find a way, believe me. Aren't there ways, uh, I understand all that too, but what about just automatically putting a sunset in any authorization, like you can't authorize military force for more than three years or five years. So that's a good start. And and that's what I would – and I've argued that uh, when we are debating uh, a new authorization of military force against ISIS, for instance, um, I would be much more willing to give the president more discretion in terms of how that war is waged if there was a sunset on it. And so I think you can get more common ground if there is an end date. There are other ideas like in order to prevent these terrorist groups from changing their name in order to avoid – Uh, U.S. military action uh, require the executive to come back to Congress once a year to get certification through the Foreign Relations Committee on the terrorist organizations that that need to be updated on the list of threats to the United States. So there are different ways that you could keep Congress involved rather than what we have today, which is Congress literally giving the entirety of the power to the chief executive. Okay, let's talk about some specific areas in the world. You've been very vocal about the Saudi uh, war in Yemen. Point blank, do you think the U.S. should be in alliance with Saudi Arabia at what price and at what cost? I think you have to pick and choose. Saudi Arabia is a very imperfect ally. Let's admit the things that we've done well together. They've been an important force for good in trying to create a detente between the Sunni Gulf nations and Israel, for instance. There was a time when Saudi Arabia was a threat to Israel. They are not today, and they've been a force for good in that endeavor. But when it comes to Yemen, uh, and when it comes to the broader proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the region, the United States doesn't have a dog in that fight. Uh, And just because we've been allies with Saudi Arabia in the past doesn't mean we have to follow them into every single reckless endeavor inside Yemen. 
everything that's happening there runs contrary to national security interests in the United States. It's not just that we're killing civilians and radicalizing young Yemenis against the United States because of the U.S.-made bombs that are dropping in that country. It's also that ISIS and al-Qaeda themselves are taking advantage of the vacuum there and getting bigger and stronger. And we just found out the other day that some of our weapons that we've been selling the Saudis, they've intentionally transferred to militias that are aligned with al-Qaeda. So there's no reason for us to be in that conflict. But I would argue that that doesn't mean that we walk away from the alliance. We just pick and choose when we work with the Saudis and when we let them go their own way. Is your objection to the Saudi war in Yemen how they've been prosecuting it or the very fact of it? Well, let's remember why it started. So it started because the Saudis mistakenly saw this very small tribe of Houthis as a threat to their interests because they practiced a different form of Islam. They were potentially allies of Iran. And so they engaged in a decade-long crusade to essentially try to eradicate the Houthis through conversion campaigns and military campaigns. And so the Saudis created much of the problem that they are now dealing with. Now, if the Houthis are firing missiles at Saudi Arabia, yes, they have to defend themselves. But and they are. A, and they are. But this is a disproportional response uh, to create a humanitarian catastrophe that 85,000 kids have died in. And they also need to recognize that it was their um, overzealous export of Salafist Wahhabist Islam into Yemen uh, that created the crisis that, that exists today. So I want to ask you about Trump and foreign policy in general. I saw a speech you gave at the Wilson Center in 2016, and it was framed as there are a couple ways to view the world, and one is the way that you were proposing, which is a sort of a progressive agenda, which includes democracy and paying attention to global warming and thinking about the political consequence of a military intervention before it happens. And then you said on the Republican side, you have the neocons, maybe you have uh, Rand Paul isolationists. Well, here you have Trump, and I, you know, I, I don't think that there's any coherent ideology there. Correct. And I don't mean it just as a free-floating insult. It, does it confuse you and confuse the, you know, where you want to take American policy, but to what extent does the fact that he is dissolute and the fact that he seems to not pay attention to a bunch of spots and also the fact that he seems motivated maybe by uh, enriching himself and his family, to what extent does that scramble the entire foreign policy picture uh, and just the very idea of an American ideology when it comes to foreign policy? Right. So listen, every president has struggled to find a doctrine or to find a consistent set of tests to apply when deciding to engage in the world. And so um, no president has been perfect in in, in foreign policy consistency. Um, Trump, of course, is um, the antithesis of consistency in that he just listens to the latest person that happened to grab his ear or appear on Fox and Friends. And you're right. Some of what he does may be connected to trying to enrich himself. My One of my cautions, though, is that uh, for Democrats is connected to a worry I have that we are going to reflexively oppose anything Trump does because we have just come to convince ourselves that everything he does in general and specifically on foreign policy is wrongheaded. Mm -hmm. And that's my worry about Syria. Um, the president is pulling us out of Syria in the wrong way. He should have planned that out with our allies better than he has, but that shouldn't goad the United States into being for endless wars. Um, I don't actually think the president should have 
recognized um, uh, Guaido as the new legitimate ruler of Venezuela. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be actively involved in other ways in trying to promote democracy in Venezuela and other places. So I, I just want to make sure that our party isn't reflexively opposing everything Trump does because some of his instincts are right, even though his implementation of those instincts is boneheaded. Yeah, or even if it's not his instincts, even if it's something else that just got him to right. that position. But I want to ask you about Venezuela and uh, Guaido. You did write in that op-ed in the Washington Post with Ben Rhodes, you know, publicly recognizing an alternative president put the credibility of the United States behind someone who is not running the country, and it stands in a long line of bold foreign policy pronouncements from the Trump administration that are not backed by realistic implementation plans. But that was written a few days before Germany, Canada, the UK, France did the same thing. So would you reconsider the foolishness of that action, given that much of the world is now lined up? Well, I think the question is, would the rest of the world have lined up had the United States not done so in the first place? And so it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem here. I, I guess. Wait, so I do you think they wouldn't have? I mean, if you think that that's a bad situation for all these nations of the world to line up like that. You so I think there's, yeah, think there's two questions here, right? So, so I think there's two questions here. One, um, are we all going to be weaker at the end of this because we have recognized a leader of a country that is not the leader and will not be the leader of the country? Maduro is still there two weeks late, two weeks later. There's not a lot of sign that the support for him inside the military is weakening. And when you call your shot diplomatically and don't make it, as Trump has done over and over again, um, it weakens our credibility to influence situations down the line. Second, there's just a fundamental inconsistency with, with how we approach dictators around the world. Maduro is an evil, terrible person, um, but so are about a dozen other brutal dictators around the world. And we have only called for one of them uh, to be deemed illegitimate by the world community. We don't recognize alternative leadership in Cameroon. We don't recognize alternative leadership in Saudi Arabia. And so yeah. I just think this is, once again, a, a, a big problem for American legitimacy and consistency around the world if we seem to be only caring about the dictators in countries that have a lot of oil. Well, it's not inconsistency. It's just that the stated, uh, this, the stated principle, which is something like openness and democracy, is not the actual principle, which is the U.S. interests. And by the way, there's something to be said for that as an American. So I agree, and that's in part what I had said immediately after we recognized uh, Guaido was that I'd be frankly more comfortable if Trump was just simply making this argument based on U.S. interests, uh, whether they were interest related to uh, playing more seriously in our hemisphere, interest yeah. related to oil, but this syrupy language about this overnight conversion to democracy promotion uh, from an administration that has showered affection on dictators left and right uh, is just a little bit too much for uh, for a lot of us to take. What are the chances politically that in AUMF, what we started talking about, what are the chances that something like that passes? Three uh, percent. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there's you know, there, there's just there's no interest on behalf of the Republican Senate to take up an AUMF. Um, I could see the House potentially passing an AUMF, uh, but the Senate won't take it up, and the president has no interest in it. So, at least in the next year and a half, the chances are close to zero. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to spend a lot of you know time and exert a lot of oxygen making the case for it, but it's uh, very low. Senator Chris Murphy is Connecticut's junior senator, but number one in our hearts. Thank you so much, Senator. Thanks, man.
And now the spiel. Klobuchar lowers the boom and faces some heat. Good evening. It's Glib Headline News at 9. And Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has announced on Boom Island that she's running for president. I will now quote from Minneapolis Fox 9, their written report. They say, U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar launched her presidential campaign Sunday afternoon during a snowy rally near downtown Minneapolis, joining a crowded field of Democrats. A light but steady snow... A light but steady snow fell during the event at Boom Island Park. Light but steady. Or what the 96% of Americans who live below the 45th parallel would describe as a blizzard, a GD blizzard. When, when they went on the air, Fox 9 News had to concede it was a bit more than a dusting. Imagine what voters in warm weather states thought of this. Amy Klobuchar launching her campaign in a snowstorm on Boom Island. What do we wonder? We wonder why no one can ever announce for the presidency inside, just inside. The president spends most of his or her time, his so far, inside. The current president spends almost all his time inside and unstructured. And when he goes outside, it's to golf, to perform at an outdoor rally, or to sit in a big truck and honk a horn. The presidency and the attaining of it has never been more of an inside job. The president took the occasion of Klobuchar's snowy spectacle to mock the senator as a snowman, parentheses woman, and to generally discount the idea of global warming itself. Here's the logic. If global warming were true, it can't be cold anywhere ever. That's just science, folks. Like if gravity were true, there'd be no way to jump off the ground. Everyone knows that. In a response tweet and later an interview with George Stephanopoulos of ABC, Klobuchar Ice the mad mango of Mar-a-Lago. I'd like to see, when he called me a snowwoman, I'd like to see how his hair would fare in a blizzard. <laughs> the crowd at the ABC studio loved it. The crowd at Klobuchar's speech really cottoned to it, too. My family story is like so many of yours. On both my mom and my dad's side, they arrived in this country with nothing but a suitcase. But they made a home here. It was cold. <laughs> Okay, maybe not as cold as this. The speech was, broadly speaking, aspirational, a little biographical. The right part's tough, tough enough to stand up to Trump, but also reassuring that she was going to operate with compassion and do right by voters. I'm into policy. I'm not into biography. Like, this part that's derogore in every political speech. I stand before you as the granddaughter of an iron ore miner, as the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man. Now listen, I, Mike, I speak to you as the grandson of a shoe salesman and a bar owner. And I got to tell you, that does not tell you anything about me. John Boehner's family owned a bar. Sidney Blumenthal's grandfather was a shoe salesman. So that's where my politics are, somewhere between John Boehner and Sidney Blumenthal. But this is just what you do during a rollout. I get it. And it was fine if flurry filled. But it wasn't just the flakes pelting Klobuchar. It was controversy. controversy. Reports have emerged that Amy Klobuchar is a bad boss. A tough boss. Huffington Post reports. In Washington, she is known as one of the most difficult bosses on Capitol Hill. According to data from 2001 to 2016, Klobuchar had the highest staff turnover rate in the Senate with an annual turnover rate of 36%. That statistic that the HuffPo reported is incorrect. The number is from a site called Legistorm. And the 36 isn't the turnover rate. It's their proprietary turnover index score, which they get by factoring who left and at what salary. So... 
more highly paid people hurt you more on that score. And she had a chief of staff who left, which is the highest paid position. So Klobuchar had a high turnover score. But by the way, she also does have high turnover. And in the reports by Politico and the HuffPo and BuzzFeed, there were a ton of former staffers who say, yeah, she yelled at us and she was a bad boss. And if Mitt Romney got dinged for binders full of women, then Klobuchar should be fairly criticized for being a binder-throwing woman. By the way, we have asked the uh, website Legistorm to come on the gist to get into more details about their staff turnover index. I love it. One strain of a defense of Klobuchar that I have no patience for personally is the if she were a man defense. I mean, sometimes it's true. Sometimes, often, we apply different standards. It just doesn't seem to be going on in this case. If Politico or HuffPo could get eight of Ted Cruz's staffers on the record talking about what a horror he is to work with, you would bet they'd run with it. You would bet we would read it. Chuck Schumer is constantly being called out for being a tough boss. Barack Obama wasn't. I don't think it was because Barack Obama was a man. I think it was because his staff seemed to really like working for him. Just like Chuck Schumer's staff turns over a lot. I did try to evaluate this criticism as honestly as I could. I tried to uh, do some hypothetical situations where I imagined it were other people being criticized. Like what would happen if Chris Christie were criticized? And I would have to admit that I'd revel in the talk of discord and I would probably tell myself, well, that reflects poorly on him as a person. However... I think this is important. The reason that I like Amy Klobuchar isn't because of what I think of her as a person. I mean, I could find out things that show that she's such a monster that I could never like her. But Tough Boss doesn't quite rise to that level. I like her because she has legislative accomplishments, as much as a Democrat can have, given that Republicans have controlled the chamber for the last four years. She's great in judiciary hearings. She asks good questions to Judge Kavanaugh. She asks the best questions to uh, Bob Barr. She and Sheldon Whitehouse are consistently the gold standard in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Klobuchar has a lot of experience in the Senate without being old. There are only 26 senators who've been in the Senate longer. Add to that list of accomplishments and why I like her, you know, including experience, including legislation, electoral success. She is enormously popular with her home state, which is not a deep blue state. It's a very purplish state. So you would have to conclude that while being awful to staff isn't a virtue, and I don't want to say it's a good thing, it doesn't seem to be getting in the way of the fundamental purpose of this job, which is to serve the people. I take, say, Trump's awfulness to his staff to heart because it's an explanation for the awfulness of his leadership. But if the outcome, if the legislation, if the constituent services, if the conduct in hearings winds up being more functional than dysfunctional, I do think we should take that into account. Not in an ends justify the means way, but just by way of not catastrophizing the process if the product is indeed good. And with Klobuchar, it's good. This is how I judge politicians, judge them by policies and accomplishments. Most people say they do, also they don't. They like to be uplifted and inspired and swept away. They like to be identified with or see a politician they can identify with. That's a big one these days. And I understand all that. I do not think Amy Klobuchar will win, but if she did, based on policies, I think it'd be a decent outcome. Because you know, we understand what we get when we elect an ineffective, cold-hearted ill-informed, bigoted, corrupt, temperamental man as president. So just figure that electing an effective, big-hearted, intelligent, honest, temperamental woman as president would not be a perfect replacement, but for my purposes, perfect enough. 
And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They have invited a 10-year-old boy named Petey Pesca to sit in today. No relation to me. But what they've done is they've bullied him endlessly and yelled at him. See how it feels, Pesca. See how it feels. TJ Raphael, Slate's senior producer, she torments the junior producer of Slate Podcasts, calling him Little Marco and Sad Eyes Chuck. No one knows why. She's just a monster. The gist. The CNN Sunday show State of the Union did, in fact, mention the State of the Union several times. But you could tell Tapper was upset at having to do so. He feels it's hurting the brand. His eyes. His eyes seem to be saying. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>